welcome to the Travel Weekly podcast. We've had a little bit of a hiatus um, since we put our last podcast out following the collapse of Thomas Cook, which has kept us very busy, as it has, I'm sure, many of you. But we are back and we're going to be talking about lots of things to do with Thomas Cook and lots more as well after travel convention, Brexit. I'm here with my colleague, Ian Taylor. Yes, the big story of the past seven eight days has been Hayes Travel it has uh, purchasing all of Thomas Cook's uh, high street shops I don't know if anybody saw them buying the the whole uh, shebang in one fell swoop um what do you make of that, Amy? Yeah, I don't think anyone saw that coming. I remember the announcement came out from the official receiver last Wednesday when we were in Japan at the um, Aptos Travel Convention, and, and I couldn't quite believe it um, when I saw saw the the headline. But yeah, I think it's a massive vote of confidence for for the high street. It's it's turned that narrative of of all the high street travel agents dead kind of completely on its head. And I actually got a text from a, a former Thomas Cook store manager down in Hove who I met at the protests at Westminster um, the other week before ABTA and she just told me it's really good news they're opening reopening her store on Monday the 21st under the Hayes um, brand her whole team is coming back and she's absolutely chuffed to bits but she said there's still a lot to do to restore customers uh, customer confidence which I think is is um, understandable, isn't it? You know, she, she's saying to me that she served customers for years and their families and their children, their children's children. All of a sudden, the, the shop's gone. So there is a bit of trust to be rebuilt uh, among customers. So, good. A fantastically positive development. Um, looking at it in the cold light of day, though, Hayes is not likely to keep all of these shops and, and end up with a, an estate of almost 750 no. shops, is he? I think it's unlikely Hayes will operate 750-odd shops long-term. They have got the licence to occupy all 555 Thomas Cook shops for the next nine months with an option to extend that for a further three months. They have paid the rents up until December the 24th. They have also bought all the fixtures and fittings in those shops. Now, if a landlord wanted to get out of this agreement, they would have to go to court and seek a forfeiture of the lease. That would be costly, that would be time-consuming. So I think it's fairly unlikely landlords are going to be taking that route. It's worth pointing out, though, that Hayes does have um, around 50 shops already in places um, within 50 metres of a Thomas Cook shop. So there will be quite a bit of duplication. So what Hayes does with those shops where there is duplication in the long term uh, will be interesting to see. And I don't think there'll be any shortage of other independent agents looking to snap those, those up. It's interesting to note as well that even though Hayes has done this deal with the liquidators for all the Thomas Cook shops... It hasn't stopped other independent agencies pursuing growth. Barhead Travel has said it wants to open at least 100 stores. It hasn't given an exact timeline for that. It has also recruited former Thomas Cook bosses, Chris Mottershead, Catherine Darbandi and Nikki Tempest-Mitchell to focus solely on growing their retail estate in the UK. Mike Batt, the chairman of Travel Leaders, which is the parent of Barhead, 
has said um, that they would look at Hayes stores or Thomas Cook stores that Hayes has taken over to see if they did want to um, get rid of any of those in the future. But, but in the meantime, is looking up and down the British high streets to see if there are any opportunities to open a barhead store. Mid-counties as well, they put in a bid for some Thomas Cook shops, around 50 or so. They obviously didn't get, get those. But that hasn't stopped them continuing with their expansion plans as well. Alistair Rowland, the retail chief in Mid-Counties, told me Mid-Counties was still pursuing expansion, albeit at a slower and more targeted pace than what it might have been had they secured some of those former Thomas Cook shops. Do you think, Ian, John Hayes and Irene anticipated Cook going and had a plan in place to do this deal weeks ago? Well, that's only they can answer that. Uh, they, you imagine they had some of the they prepared to have the finances available so they could act quickly, um, which wouldn't be stupid. It, it was clear that there was a strong possibility of cook going uh, bust from May onwards. I'd say, and certainly in the final weeks week days it was it looked more likely than not so um yeah they could easily have had uh, the finances in place and then it's not difficult to to act quickly mm. is it i mean you would have been talking about having a few million pounds um well john and irene hayes would have been able to get mm. make the arrangements to get hold of that yeah i don't go along with people thinking oh they knew in advance it was going bust that's nonsense yeah and I think it was you that pointed out, you know, they're the privately owned company. They are the owners. They don't have to get loads of sign-off. They don't have a big corporate structure or a board. Or, well, they probably do have a board. But in that sense, it's it's quite easy for them to manoeuvre, isn't it? Yeah, they've only got to convince the, the bank or, or whoever else is going to provide the capital. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, let's move on and talk about Peter Fankhauser, former Thomas Cook chief executive, who was um, grilled by MPs this week, along with Chairman Frank Meisman. How did he... You watched it, didn't you? You watched it all. How do you think he did overall yeah it, it wasn't just uh, the two of them actually there were um the chief financial officer of course, and yeah. uh, the head of the remuneration committee um and and another board member uh it made uncomfortable viewing at times i i thought peter fankhauser uh, came out of it rather well i thought he dealt with the questioning uh fairly comfortably I thought Frank Meisman, the chairman, was a bit of a car crash. Uh, he seemed to misunderstand the questioning of the committee at uh, uh, times, and clearly his responses got up the nose of the chair of the committee, Rachel Reeves. But the, the strongest impression I took from it, actually, was how ill-informed uh, most of the MPs were, with the exception of a, a couple of them. And it was clear, particularly from the chair, Rachel Reeves' performance, that it was just an, it was seen as an opportunity to grandstand, yeah. basically, to lecture these um, company directors who, you know, whatever you think of the, uh, the collapse, are not guilty of uh, uh, doing anything that directors of most companies have... Have, have done. What were the key moments? What were the key findings that stood out for you? Well, it was pretty short on 
fresh revelations. I mean, Rachel Reeves in particular harped on about pay and uh, one of the other MPs talked about the possibilities of claw, claw, clawing back some of the bonuses. And it emerged that basically uh, Peter Fankhauser and the previous chief financial officer could forfeit between them up to about a million pounds of their their bonuses if the liquidator decides uh, to go for it. That but that would be up to the the the, the li liquidator. It didn't really shed um, much light really on uh, on on the way the the board operated or or anything like that. The the one it didn't really even clarify the timeline of the the collapse for me, although the MPs were looking at a timeline that had been provided by the by the board. So there might be more on that in their uh, report. The one element of new news, if you, if you like, was the detail of, of Fankhauser and Meisman's contacts with the government. And there was a meeting between Fankhauser and Grant Shapps, the Secretary of State for Transport, on September the 9th. And thereafter, a senior official at the Department for Transport was in, con uh, had other meetings with, with Fankhauser and they had regular contact, enough contact for Peter Fankhauser to say he was confident that the, they would have the support of the, of the government in providing the credit guarantee that the banks decided at the final hour they, they, uh, they wanted. And... The, the government turned around at the last minute and said no. But in the meantime, there had been no contact between the company and any other minister for the UK government when they, the company was in constant contact with the Spanish government, the Greek government, the Turkish government, the Bulgarian government, and so on, who were prepared to underwrite loans, the Spanish government, the loans of Spanish hoteliers, and so on. And so it, it's quite clear that Cook could have survived if the government had shown more interest in it surviving. Mm. And it stri struck me that... I don't go along with the idea that Cook was unlucky and it was ill luck brought Cook, Cook, Cook down, but it, it did have a final piece of bad luck because I've, I suspect that if Theresa May had still been in government, the government may well have found the, uh, the way to give a, guarant a guarantee because there would have been somebody different running the, the Department for Business. There, probably there would have been a different Transport Secretary, slightly less ideologically committed to non-intervention in industry and the, the in business and, and so on. Uh, and I suspect if post the general election we have in November there was a a coalition government or even a Corbyn-led government, e equally Cook would probably have survived because it would have got a, the, the necessary government guarantee. And it's, you know, it went down at the moment when there's a government that, on, that was not going to uh, uh, give any help, even to the level of giving a guarantee because it would have set a, a precedent, it said. That said, would Thomas Cook have gone bust anyway yeah. in a year's time? Quite possibly, mm. because it went bust because of the debt. It? Okay, the debt was going to be written, written off, so it would have not been carrying the, the the debt. But I don't think the market is going to become less competitive over the next twelve months, and therefore margins aren't going to uh, in, increase. 
and Cook would still have been left with the banks owning its its airline and wanting to sell it mm. uh, in circumstances yeah. where they weren't going to get what they wanted for it. Interestingly, we'll talk about ABTA in, after this, but Mark Tanzer at the convention said he didn't think the government should intervene. They were right not to. So anyway, we'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah. I felt it was quite soon for the bosses to be hauled in front of a committee when the liquidation process is still very much ongoing. So why, why do they do it so soon? Well, the, the, this was a decision of the chair of the the, the committee, wasn't it? The business, um, whatever else it is, uh, c- committee. It's got a long name. And I think it's a clue to the purpose of it. I think it was more about grandstanding while Thomas Cook's in the news than it was about getting to the bottom of what mm. happened. Appearing to be doing something. And will they be appearing again? Could the committee call another hearing? Well, they could probably call them back, but um, there are set to be subsequent hearings, which will involve Harriet Green, Peter Fankhauser's predecessor, and Manny Fontaine-Navoa, who uh, was there before Harriet Green. So they'll appear... um, In a way, really, I mean, the select committee will produce a report which people will generally ignore although it'll make you know some stories on the day it, it it's published the more important um investigations are really by the financial reporting council mm. which will look at the auditing of thomas cook and the insolvency re- review which andrea ledson the business secretary has asked to look into the conduct of the directors so mm. that those are the more significant things serious reviews take a bit longer though don't they when when can we expect those uh, th- those are underway now but i mean how long's a piece of string yeah okay all right let's talk about the Ab- abta travel convention we were both there along with other members of the team in japan we missed the typhoons th- thankfully what did you take from it i thought it was remarkably upbeat in the circumstances with uh, people really already moving on from Thomas Cook and you know to a person people expressed uh, regret for what what had happened sympathy for those caught up in it uh, uh, and so on everyone had a story about dealing with the 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 fallout from the the failure and and so on but people were looking to the future shape of the sector and the opportunities it presented mm. for, for them and others. So I thought it was remarkably uh, um, uh, upbeat. Mark Tanzer characterised the failure as a failure of corporate finance, and he's obviously right to a large extent ab- about that. It, it wasn't, you know, the mainstream media and reporting it as a failure of the high street travel mm. agents or the traditional tour operators and so on. That's mm. complete uh, package, nonsense. Package holidays. And uh, ABTA chairman Alistair Rowland argued that there, there, there will have to be clarity in future about who holds money, when they hold it, how it's protected uh, and, and so on. It seems clear that as a consequence of this, agency agreements are going to look somewhat different in, in future. Uh, spelling out when money's mm. remitted and, and so on. And also in terms of customer data, John Bevin from um, Donata talked a lot about that. You know, he couldn't get hold of customers, uh, Thomas Cook customers, to tell them that their holidays were secure. Um, so that's something that will that will 
change. So I, I suppose out of a terrible collapse, good can come of it, can't it? Reform and changes for the industry. Let's finish off on your favourite topic, Brexit. Is there anything to say about it that hasn't already been said? Yeah, it's not my favourite topic. I'm I don't know. I'm as sick to death of I it as, as anybody else. <laughs> I just happen to think it's going to hit you over the head whether you like it or not, so you might as well be ready for the blow. What shifted is that it has become absolutely clear that Boris wants a deal. And all the talk of no deal was bluster. The, at the, the final knockings, it's clear now that Boris is, is prepared to go back on all the promises they made to the DUP, which kept May in office and, and so on, and basically have a border between Northern Ireland and, and the, the rest of Britain in the Irish Sea at the behest of the EU and that the the levers, you know, the, the 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 hardest levers in the Tory party will accept this, that they'll pay money to the DUP in order to bribe them into buying it, basically, in order to get a deal, because they're desperate uh, both to fulfil his promise to leave on October the 31st and, and to not have no deal, to get a deal. And even at the expense that, they may postpone leaving October the 31st to carry on the negotiations if they can't dot the I's and cross the T's of doing that by the, the end of this week. The EU may even have another summit at the end of next, next week and push it right up to the, you know, the day of the, 30, of the 31st. So it would be a mistake for anyone to 100% convince themselves that there will be a deal, but they, I'm convinced really, I'm not running a business, that no deal is not is not a runner. Okay, well that's good. I just foresee it going on and on and on forever, but hopefully it won't. All right, thanks very much, Ian. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks' time. Remember, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, find us on SoundCloud and Spotify as well. 